This is Space Time, Series 19, Episode 80, for broadcast on the 11th of November, 2016. Space Time is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, YouTube, SoundCloud, Audioboom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Space Time, a new gravity hypothesis which could explain both dark matter and dark energy, evidence that novae are the major source of lithium in the universe, and a new more detailed map of the Milky Way galaxy. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. A new hypothesis of gravity may explain both dark matter and dark energy, the two biggest mysteries in science today. The study, reported on the pre-press physics website archive.org, claims the new idea, called emergent gravity, appears to explain the exact same deviations in the motions of stars in galaxies that are usually explained by inserting dark matter into the theory. The new study's lead author, Professor Eric Valindi from the University of Amsterdam, says that at large scales it seems gravity simply doesn't behave the way Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity predicts. Einstein described gravity as the effect mass has on the fabric of space-time. In 2010, Valindi surprised the world with a brand new theory of gravity. According to Valindi, gravity isn't a fundamental force in nature, but rather an emergent phenomenon. In the same way that temperature arises from the movement of microscopic particles, Valende believes that gravity emerges from changes in the fundamental bits of information stored in the very structure of space-time. In his 2010 paper, Valende showed how Newton's famous second law, which describes how an apple falls from a tree and also how satellites stay in orbit, can be derived from these underlying microscopic building blocks. Extending on his previous work, and that done by others, Valinde now shows how to understand the curious behaviour of stars in galaxies without needing to add dark matter, that mysterious substance which can't be seen and which only interacts with normal matter through gravity. You see, the outer regions of galaxies rotate much faster around the galactic centre than what can be accounted for by the quantity of ordinary matter like stars, planets and interstellar gases that are located there. There's got to be something else there which produces that required amount of gravitational force, and that's when scientists came up with dark matter as a possible answer. Dark matter seems to dominate our universe. In fact, more than 80% of all the matter in the cosmos must have a dark nature. However, the alleged dark matter particles, if they exist, have never been observed despite many efforts to try and detect them. Now, according to Valende, there's no need to add a mysterious dark matter particle to the theory. Valende says his theory of gravity accurately predicts the velocities by which stars rotate around the centre of the Milky Way, as well as the motions of stars inside other galaxies. And the evidence indicates Valende's new view of gravity actually agrees with the observations. At first glance, Valende's theory has many features which appear to be similar to modified Newtonian dynamics, or MOND, which was first published by Mordechai Milgram in 1983. However, where Mon tunes the hypothesis to match the observations, Valinde's emergent gravity starts from first principles. 
One of the ingredients in emergent gravity is an adaption of the holographic principle, introduced by 1999 Nobel laureates Gerard Hooft from Utrecht University and Stanford University's Leonard Susskind. According to the holographic principle, all the information in the universe can be described on a giant imaginary sphere around it. According to Valinde, this idea isn't quite correct. He thinks part of the information in the universe is contained in space itself. This extra information is required to describe the other dark component of the universe, dark energy, which is held responsible for the accelerated expansion of the cosmos. While investigating the effects of this additional information on ordinary matter, Valinde came to a stunning conclusion. Whereas ordinary gravity can be encoded by using the information on an imaginary sphere around the universe only, as Valende showed in his 2010 work, the result of the additional information in the bulk of space is a force that nicely matches the one now attributed to dark matter. For a while now, scientists have known that gravity is in dire need of new approaches since it doesn't combine well with quantum physics. The problem is both theories, the crown jewels of 20th century physics, can't be true at the same time. The problems arise in extreme conditions, near black holes or during the Big Bang, anything that involves a singularity. Many theoretical physicists are working on a revision of the theory and some major advancements have already been made. Linde thinks physics may well now be standing on the brink of a new scientific revolution, one which will radically change our views on the very nature of space, time and gravity. A new study has discovered that most of the lithium in the universe is made in exploding stars called novae. The findings, reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, are based on observations of an unusually long and bright novae, Sagittarius 2015 number 2, which occurred last year. Practically every element on the periodic table is produced by stars. A first genesis took place in what's known as primordial nucleosynthesis, between 10 seconds and 20 minutes after the Big Bang 13.8 billion years ago. During this time, gluons and quarks combined to form the first light elements in the universe, almost 75% hydrogen and almost 25% helium, and very small amounts of lithium and beryllium. The remaining chemical elements on the periodic table were all formed in stars. Some are manufactured through the fusion of other elements inside stars as they shine. This begins with the fusion of hydrogen into helium and produces increasingly heavier elements until iron is reached. Those elements on the periodic table heavier than iron are produced either in the atmosphere of giant stars or when stars explode in supernova explosions. All these elements in turn have then been recycled into new generations of stars and planets right up until the present day. But lithium's always posed a bit of a problem. See, Scientists already knew that about 25% of the existing lithium in the universe came as a result of primordial nucleosynthesis. But they weren't able to trace the origins of the remaining 75%. Lithium is the lightest solid element in existence. It plays an important role in our lives, both at a biological level and also at a technological level. A team of researchers, including Luca Iso from the Institute of Astrophysics in Andalusia, made a series of observations of Nova Sagittarii 2015 number 2 using the European Southern Observatory's Very Large Telescope, the VLT. They studied the Nova over the course of 24 nights. Nova Sagittarii 2015 number 2 was detected on March 15, 2015, by amateur astronomer John Seach from Chatsworth Island on the Clarence River near Grafton on the New South Wales north coast. 
it remained visible for more than 80 days, as both the brightest nova in Sagittarius since 1898 and the brightest seen anywhere since Nova Centauri in the second half of 2013. The long observation made it possible for the first time to follow the evolution of the Beryllium-7 signal inside a nova and even to calculate the amount present. Beryllium-7 is an unstable element, which decays into lithium in 53.2 days. This discovery suggests that novae are the main source of lithium in the galaxy. A nova is a powerful explosion occurring on the surface of a dead star called a white dwarf. A white dwarf is the slowly cooling core of a sun-like star. Now, if the white dwarf is in a tight orbit with another star in a binary system, it can gravitationally draw matter off that companion star. Eventually, a thick layer of hydrogen is built up on the white dwarf's surface. As this hydrogen layer gets heavier and heavier and denser and denser, it triggers nuclear fusion, resulting in a powerful explosion called a nova, which can increase the brightness of the star by up to 100,000 times. Importantly, the nova explosion, while huge, isn't powerful enough to destroy the white dwarf, as would happen in a supernova event. And after a few weeks, the system stabilizes and the process starts again. The existence of beryllium-7 had been previously documented in another nova, but the measure of the amount of lithium which would ultimately be produced from it on Nova Sagittarii 2015-N2 came as a complete surprise. ISO says the nova produced 10 times more lithium than the Sun. With these amounts in mind, just two similar novae events a year would more than suffice to account for all the lithium in the Milky Way galaxy. Scientists have created one of the most detailed maps ever of our Milky Way galaxy. The survey, known as Hi4 Pi and published in the Journal of Astronomy and Astrophysics, examined neutral atomic hydrogen, the most abundant element in the universe and the main component of stars and galaxies. Hydrogen consists of just a single proton and is the simplest element in space, formed as we mentioned earlier during primordial nuclear synthesis 13.8 billion years ago. Now, if this proton is combined with an electron, it's called neutral atomic hydrogen, abbreviated to H1. In addition to the well-known hydrogen spectral lines in the visual part of the electromagnetic spectrum, extremely faint hydrogen line emissions can also be observed at radio wavelengths, the so-called 21-centimetre line. Even though the emitted energy is really tiny, the sheer amount of hydrogen in space makes the 21-centimetre emission line observable in nearly all galactic environments, even far beyond the stellar population of galaxies. The new survey improves on the previous neutral hydrogen study, the Leiden Argentine Bonner LAB survey published 11 years ago, by a factor of 2 in sensitivity and a factor of 4 in angular resolution. The high 4 pi surveys collected data on clouds of hydrogen gas at full resolution, thereby allowing scientists to learn more about the physics of what's going on in these areas and where the structures are coming from. By the way, the survey's name, Hi4Pi, well, that refers to the astrophysical abbreviation for neutral hydrogen, H1, or in this case, Hi, and the geometrical reference to the whole sky, 4Pi, indicating the survey covers all directions of the sky. To conduct their survey, the researchers used the CSIRO's Parkes Radio Telescope in New South Wales and the Eiffelsberg 100-metre radio telescope operated by the Max Planck Institute in Germany. Although neutral hydrogen is fairly easy to detect with modern telescopes, mapping the whole sky was still a significant achievement. Hi4Pi required more than a million individual observations and some 10 billion individual data points. 
Radio noise, caused by everything from mobile phones to microwave ovens and broadcast stations, pollute the faint emissions coming from stars and galaxies in the universe. So the research team had to develop sophisticated computer algorithms to clean each individual data point of this unwanted interference. One of the study's authors, Professor Lister Stavelli-Smith from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research and the University of Western Australia, says the new survey reveals fine details of structures between stars in the Milky Way for the very first time. These structures have been smeared out due to the lower resolution sampling of the sky in previous surveys. Pilot studies of the high 4 pi data show a wealth of filamentary structures never before seen. Tiny molecular gas and dust clouds that appear to have fueled star formation in the Milky Way for billions of years now become visible. These objects are too dim and small to have been detected even in other galaxies close to us. Having a clearer picture of the hydrogen in the Milky Way and where it is will also help astronomers exploring galaxies at far higher cosmological distances. That's because all the observations astronomers make of the distant universe still have to pass through that hydrogen in our own galaxy before reaching the astronomers' telescopes. The high 4 pi data allows astronomers to more accurately correct for all these hydrogen clouds. It's sort of like cleaning the window you're looking through. Stavelli-Smith says the new survey will allow scientists to answer some of the big questions about the Milky Way and neighbouring galaxies as well. Questions such as how the Milky Way gets all the new gas it needs to continue forming new stars, and where are all those small dwarf galaxies that should be surrounding the Milky Way but simply don't appear to be there? So neutral hydrogen allows us to see the gas between the stars, so we can obviously use our optical telescope to look up at the sky and see the stars in the Milky Way, but in fact when we do so we're just seeing us nearby stars because the dust of course that provides our Milky Way stops us seeing very fine optical wavelengths. So what's special about looking with radio telescopes at hydrogen is that AFIs see much more distant arms and much more distant structure in the Milky Way, but it also allows us to see the gas in the Milky Way what we call the interstellar medium. Um, hydrogen is the most abundant uh, element of the universe and obviously a very important part of the universe. And it's this gas which will later collapse and form new stars in the future. And what you were able to do using this technique was to actually see some very fine filaments of neutral hydrogen. Yeah, so we've been able to use some large telescopes over many years to make a very detailed map of the sky, make a very detailed map of the Milky Way. We have to observe the whole sky because, of course, we're inside the Milky Way. We're not outside it. We're inside it and planted by it. So we have to use telescopes in both hemispheres. And because they're the largest telescope available, basically, the Park 64-metre and the 100-metre telescope near Eppelsburg in Germany, they're able to make uh, images with very, very fine resolution, very fine uh, detail. In fact, a factor of, at least a factor of four finer than any previous equivalent maps. And does that help you when you, because as you've pointed out, we're inside the Milky Way, does that help you when you're looking through the Milky Way to the more distant universe beyond? Yeah, so the... The interstellar medium that we see, the hydrogen that we see, has does have an effect on the background universe. For example, our galaxy contains a lot of dust. That dust is actually mixed in with the, the hydrogen and that dust 
is very, very easily obscures uh, light from background galaxies. So it's very important for us to know the highest resolution possible what that dust distribution is. And uh, I'm just reminded of uh, the controversy. You might remember uh, a, a year ago, I think, that uh, there was a claim of uh, polarization of a certain type of polarization in Ah, yes, the gravitational claim that went to dust. That's right, and it was caused by dust. It was caused by magnetized dust, and uh, you can see exactly the patterns that uh, were responsible for, you know, in the data that we've got. It's just mimics uh, interstellar structure. Yeah, not only does dust alongside the hydrogen block out uh, light and cause these magnetized filaments, but it's also responsible for absorbing X-ray radiation from very distant active galaxies and black holes. And X-ray astronomers, for example, are also very appreciative of having a very detailed maps of the hydrogen so that they know how to correct observations more precisely. All right, let's talk about the survey as a whole now. The surveys that were conducted with the Parkes Telescope, that was a survey that was led by Professor Naomi McClure-Griffith, who's at the Australian National University. It commenced in 2005, and uh, we used about a couple of thousand hours of telescope time to conduct that survey. That was a very substantial survey in itself, and quite a lot of science has come out of that survey. But separately, the Germans did a similar survey, started later and took longer, only finished a couple of years ago with a larger telescope in Germany, the 100 metre telescope. It's not quite in as good a radio quiet location as parks, but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's good, good enough. So what we've actually done in this particular study is not done any new observations after those earlier observations, but we've actually put them together in a way that makes a consistent map of the sky at the same level of detail, with the same parameters, with the same sensitivity, so that it, well, we think at least as seamless an image of the sky as we can obtain. And that noise you were talking about in the Effelsberg region, that's a big problem, isn't it? The human interference, the unwanted human noise that pollutes everything around us, really, because we're part of it. So uh, you've had to develop some fairly sophisticated algorithms to try and uh, clean that up. Yes, in fact, most of it, we used uh, quite a lot of telescope time. Most of the wall time was spent cleaning up the data, imaging it, yeah, but uh, cleaning it up uh, of interference was the most difficult job. There's two sources of that, those unwanted signals. One is the first is man-made. I mean, that's the band we're looking at, the frequency range we're looking at, should be protected by international treaty because the hydrogen line was quickly recognised as being an important part of the radio frequency spectrum many years ago, and quite a bit of bandwidth was set aside for the exclusive use of radio astronomy. So no transmissions are supposed to be allowed. But nevertheless, you know, equipment gets badly designed. Certain people are ignorant of the regulations. So we do have to deal with some spurious emission in that band, and that takes quite a bit. That took quite a bit of our time. But secondly, we also have interestingly spurious emissions from the sky. That arises because the galactic center is, or the galactic plane, the plane of the Milky Way, is so bright in hydrogen, it glows in hydrogen, it's made of, uh, largely made of hydrogen, that when we look away from the galactic plane, we are able to still detect that signal. And that's a bit like trying to look at the Milky Way with your eyes when you get a street lamp in the corner of your eye and you, you just the glare is a bit too much. Well, we have ways of using computers subtracting out some of that glare and 
radio telescopes, and quite a lot of effort had to go into doing that uh, properly and carefully and consistently across the, the whole sky. So it was probably the biggest effort that went into the survey. What about the name itself? Obviously, the H1, the first part of the name, refers to neutral hydrogen. Correct, yeah. H1 refers to neutral hydrogen, and uh, four, 4 pi is just a, a geeky name for the, the whole sky. And the whole sky, you know, the area of the sphere is 4 pi r steradian, uh, 4 pi r squared. And, you know, John must talk about the two-dimensional angle of the whole sky being 4 pi. So just a shorthand geeky term that we... When you discover all these additional filaments, these very fine filaments, were you expecting to see them? Yeah, in the galactic plane, we've certainly made the high resolution was very important in making some new new discoveries. And that, I mean, McClure Griffith published a couple of papers with collaborators on new what we call supercharges in the galactic plane, seen for the first time because of the higher resolution of the Parkes telescope initially, and followed up later with more higher resolution observations with the Australian telescope compact array. Those supercells are kind of defined by strong circular filamentary regions, circular regions, and appear to be created by an enormous explosion in the Milky Way. Probably a combination of supernovae and winds from massive stars as they reach the end of their, their lifetime. I've also been involved in uh, other filaments associated with our nearest neighbours, the Magellanic Cloud. So the tidal, the gravitational tug of the Milky Way is so strong as it's actually pulling hydrogen out of our nearest extra galactic neighbours, the Magellanic clouds, the small cloud and the large cloud. And those filaments extend, some of which we were able to see for the first time with the, 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 the new high resolution. Those filaments then right across the sky. So the new uh, combination of the both hemispheres will enable us to continue studies in, in even more detail in the, in the future. That's Professor Lister Stavelli-Smith from the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research and the University of Western Australia. The full moon on Tuesday, November the 15th will be a little bit bigger and brighter than normal. That's because on that day, the moon will be closer to the Earth than it's been in nearly 69 years. At 22.23 Australian Eastern Daylight Time, 11.23 Greenwich Mean Time, the centres of the moon and the Earth will be just 356,509 kilometres apart. Surface to surface, the distance will be just 348,401 kilometres. And full moon occurs less than three hours later at 0.52 Australian Eastern Daylight Time or 13.52 Greenwich Mean Time. The moon hasn't been this close to the Earth since January 26, 1948 and the separation was 48 kilometres less than what it will be this month. And it won't come this close again until November 25, 2034 when it will be 64 kilometres less. The reason for this rare proximity is due mostly to the fact that the Moon's orbit around the Earth isn't a perfect circle, but instead is slightly elliptical. On average, the Moon orbits the Earth at a distance of roughly 384,400 kilometres, but it's about 5% closer to the Earth at perigee and about 5% further away at apogee. The distances at perigee and apogee vary from month to month due to several factors, such as whether the lunar orbit's long axis is pointed towards the Sun. Also, the Moon's orbital extremes are greatest during November through to February because that's when the Earth is closest to the Sun. 
Earth's orbit itself is also slightly elliptical, by about 2%, and therefore the Sun's gravitational influence is greatest during those months. Technically, the November 15 event is called a perigean full moon. In recent years, however, these especially close lunar encounters have become known by the more trendy title of supermoons. That nickname was coined back in 1979, not by a scientist, but simply by an astrologer who applied it to any time the new or full moon was within 90 degrees of perigee. So, the big question, will the moon look especially big and bright on November the 15th? Well, not really. At its closest point, the moon will appear to be about 7% larger in diameter and maybe 15% greater in area than average. Add to that the fact that we're closer to the sun than usual and the lunar disk will appear about 16% brighter than an average full moon. But that still won't really be enough for the average person to notice unless they're an astronomer. For many people, me included, the full moon always looks unusually large when it's near the horizon. It's an effect known as moon illusion. Images that show a huge full moon rising dramatically above a city skyline doesn't match the reality your eyes see because the camera is magnifying the view. In fact, there's no side-by-side way to compare an average full moon with November's especially big one. However, you can gauge the moon's apparent difference in size simply by using the tip of your finger or a pencil eraser held at arm's length or by looking at it through a narrow straw. It'll always be about half a degree across. One consequence of a supermoon that might be notable involves ocean tides. Many factors influence tidal heights at a given location, although they're usually highest, called spring tides, during a full or new moon but they'll get an additional small boost, perhaps worth a couple of centimetres on November the 15th, thanks to the so-called supermoon. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Space Time as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, YouTube, Audioboom, and from SpaceTimeWithStuartGary.com. The show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr. Just search for Space Time with Stuart Gary.